Hi, this is Alan Burrow for Faith Working. The sermon you are about to hear is one I preached at the King's Congregation in Meridian, Idaho. For more sermon podcasts or for the Faith Working radio show podcasts, go to faithworking.com. To subscribe to all our Faith Working podcasts, go to the iTunes store and search for Faith Working under podcasts. For information about the King's Congregation, go to the church website at thekingscongregation.com. We continue to consider Matthew's Gospel. This morning we come to the text in Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 23. Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 23. Let us read it together. This is the very breath of our God. Now when the Magi had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I bring you word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt, and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord to the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry. And he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all its districts, from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping, and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted, because they are no more. But when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the young child's life are dead. Then he arose and took the young child and his mother and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea instead of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned by God in a dream, he turned aside into the region of Galilee. And he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. God and Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for bringing your Son into the world. And we pray now that we might hear his story by your Holy Spirit, that we might know, that we might believe, that we might have his life through the Spirit. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we had a special Christmas service last week, so let's remember where we are. We're near the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew, which is the opening of the New Testament, and we have seen that Matthew begins the New Testament by announcing its conclusion, that Jesus Christ has inaugurated a new creation and has begun a new history of mankind and the world. And Jesus has not done this by destroying the first creation and starting over on a clean slate. Rather, he has done it in the midst of the first creation, which lies enthralled to Satan, sin, and death. He has done it in the midst of the first history of heaven and earth, which is the tragic tale of death and evil always winning out. He has done it in the midst of the first human history, the first human race, which has fallen and is powerless to change its condition. 
Jesus has done it this way because it is not the will of God to destroy and start over, but it is rather through Jesus to save and to transform. And after this bombshell of an opening, there is one question on everybody's mind. How? Matthew begins that answer by announcing the incarnation. That in Jesus, God has become man and fully man, without ceasing to be God and fully God. In this way, God has fully joined himself to fallen man. He has fully entered into fallen history. He has fully become part of this fallen creation without himself being fallen. It is only the incarnation. It is the incarnation alone that puts God in Christ in a position to do something about the checkmate that Satan had achieved over mankind and the world. So the first part of the how question is answered in the incarnation. But a lot of the how question still remains. The incarnation puts God and Christ in a position to do something. But still, how did Jesus pull it off? How did he bring about this revolution of heaven and earth? And that is the question that Matthew will answer in his story of the life and the ministry of Jesus. And Matthew begins by giving us the overarching storyline. And he does this by relating to us the early events of Jesus' life and also the prophecies that were fulfilled in Jesus' early life. And that storyline is this. In Jesus, God is redefining Israel, and He is reliving her story, and thus fulfilling her calling and her destiny. Now, we already saw in Matthew's account of the Magi that Jesus is the true temple of God. Jesus is where God's presence dwells. Jesus is where heaven and earth meet. And accordingly, all who want to worship God in spirit and in truth must come now to Jesus. And in our text today, we see that just as Old Testament Israel was defined by the presence of God in the temple, so now God is redefining Israel around the presence of God in Jesus. In other words, Jesus is true Israel. True in two senses. Jesus is genuine Israel. He's the real Israel. He's the real deal. And secondly, true in the sense of faithful. He is finally a faithful Israelite. And in Jesus, God is now reliving the whole story of Israel from the Old Testament. Why? Well, because Israel was unfaithful to her God. She was... uh, unfaithful in her calling. She failed in that calling and thus she missed out on her destiny. But Jesus, as we will see, will succeed everywhere Israel failed. He will be faithful in every way that she wasn't. He will love God and man as she should have, but never did. And this theme of Jesus as true Israel and Jesus reliving Israel's story and fulfilling her calling and her destiny, this will serve as the backbone of Matthew's gospel. And so we see that as Israel was called out of Egypt, so Jesus in our text is called out of Egypt. As Israel came through the waters of baptism in the Red Sea, 
Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10 that that was a baptism. Even so, Jesus will come through the waters of baptism. As Israel was tempted in the wilderness, so Jesus will be tempted in the wilderness. As God gave the law on Mount Sinai, so Jesus will ascend a mount and will give the law. And so on it will go throughout Matthew's gospel. And Matthew begins this storyline in our text. And he does so in two ways. First, he shows us how the early events of Jesus' life were a retelling, a recapitulation of the Exodus story. And yet the way that it was relived in the early life of Jesus is a very disturbing Exodus story, uh, at least to those who were present in Israel at the time. And secondly, Matthew shows us how these early events fulfilled Old Testament prophecies. This disturbing, this subversive retelling and reenactment of the Exodus story was not something unplanned. It was God's way from the beginning, and he foretold it in the Old Testament prophecies. So let's jump in and look at how Matthew weaves these things together, which is to say, let's look at how God brought these things together in the life of Jesus. Now, we mentioned the Exodus story, which is the part that is being relived now in these early events in Jesus' life. Now, Matthew has the Exodus story right. In other words, the events occur in all the same sequence as they did in the Old Testament. But what's disturbing about it, at least to the powers that be at the time, is the casting and the geography. Matthew has the casting all wrong. And he has the geography all wrong. The new Moses who will deliver Israel is not the son of one of the rulers in Jerusalem, but the son of a carpenter in Nazareth, which was from the region of Galilee, which was a despised region because it was a mixture of Jew and Gentile. It was kind of like the armpit of Palestine in that area. And Nazareth was a nothing city. And furthermore, Jesus' birth, his conception, occurred under very suspicious circumstances. The new Pharaoh who slaughters the infant boys is not the king of Egypt, nor does he even live in Egypt. He is rather the king of the Jews, and he lives in Jerusalem. And his name is not Pharaoh, it is Herod. And Pharaoh's magicians who will counsel him in opposition to Jesus are not from Egypt either. They're not even Gentiles. They are the religious leaders of Israel. And the new Egypt is not geographical Egypt, nor is it the despised typological Egypt of the day, Rome. It is rather Israel herself. And Matthew makes this clear in his first prophecy which he cites, which is from Hosea 11.1. 1. Out of Egypt I called my son. Notice that in the text, Matthew says that out of Egypt I call my son was fulfilled not when Joseph brought Jesus back from Egypt to Israel, but when Joseph took Jesus out of Israel to Egypt. The prophecy was fulfilled when Joseph took Jesus out of Israel to Egypt. It was already fulfilled before Joseph brought him back from Egypt. This is a very subversive and disturbing retelling and reliving of the Exodus story. And the point is very clear. Israel herself has become Egypt. Israel's problem is not out there. 
Israel's problem is not Rome. Israel's problem is not fundamentally political or economic. Israel's problem is fundamentally herself. It is a spiritual problem. It is a moral problem. It is within her own heart. How can Israel depart from Egypt when Israel is Egypt? Wherever she goes, she takes Egypt with her. And this is the point also of Matthew's second prophecy, which comes from Jeremiah 31, verse 15. In verses 17 and 18, he quotes the prophet, the, uh, Jeremiah, A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping, and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are more, no more. Now Matthew says that this prophecy was fulfilled when Herod slaughtered the infant boys in and around Bethlehem. And this is a very interesting prophecy, and it has a very interesting fulfillment in our text. And this is why it is so important that when we read uh, a quote from the Old Testament, or when we read a prophecy or a citation or an allusion of the Old Testament in the New, we need to go back and read it. Rachel lived hundreds of years before the prophet Jeremiah. And she, of course, was the wife of Jacob. And you will recall that she was barren. She could not have children. And that's the only time we're told of Rachel weeping over her children who literally were not. That's the only time in Scripture we're actually told that she wept over her children. She wept over her own barrenness. She wept over the children that she didn't have. She wept over the fact she couldn't have children. And then Jeremiah, by the Holy Spirit, many hundreds of years later, refers prophetically to Rachel weeping over her children, who are not, when the children of Israel were taken off into the Babylonian captivity. When Nebuchadnezzar first came and uh, obtained the subservience of Judea and Jerusalem, he took a token of that by taking... Uh, vessels from the temple, and also taking the best of the young men, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, you remember them. That's when they were all taken off into Babylon, and that's what Jeremiah is referring to as Rachel weeping over her children who are not. So notice the connection between barrenness, the inability to have children, fruitlessness there, and having children who are taken off into captivity by a pagan power due to the sin of God's own people. They're linked together by God in his word. The point is that there's more than one form of barrenness. One is not being able to have children. Another one is having your children carted off into captivity and slavery due to the sin of God's own people. And that's Matthew's point as well. Israel's children in our text here are being captured and slaughtered, not by the king of Babylon, not by the king of Egypt, but by the king of Israel, with Israel's religious leaders as his advisors. And this is even a greater form of spiritual barrenness. That's the point. The first time Rachel weeps in Scripture, it's because she can have no children. The next time Rachel weeps, prophetically speaking, it is because her children are confiscated and carried off into captivity. The third time Rachel weeps prophetically, it is because her children are captured and killed and slaughtered by the king of Israel. 
each time Rachel is weeping for her children, which are not. Each time her barrenness and her sorrow deepens. Rachel's weeping, you see. If you could picture a poster of Rachel weeping, it's the poster for Israel. That sums up Israel's whole story. And it sums up the story of the human race. It's the story of mankind. Rachel weeping. But it's not the end of the story. The prophecy of Rachel weeping comes in the middle of Jeremiah 31. Now, when I say Jeremiah 31, what big, really important thing happens in Jeremiah 31? I should know this. As soon as you hear Jeremiah 31, what do you think? The New Covenant, right? That's the great prophecy of the New Covenant. It's quoted extensively in the book of Hebrews and other places in the New Testament. This is the great prophecy of the New Covenant. Right in the middle of this whole passage, in the middle of the chapter, is this prophecy about Rachel um, weeping. I want you to consider the context and the lead-in to this prophecy. It's very striking. The passage starts out not talking about weeping, but talking about singing. It talks about God's people singing. It talks about God's people streaming to the goodness of the Lord. It talks about God's people having souls like well-watered gardens. And it talks about the promise that they will sorrow no more, for the Lord will turn their mourning to joy. And then suddenly, in the midst of this glorious passage, it suddenly turns to Rachel weeping for her children, for they are not. But then God says in the passage, Refrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for your work shall be rewarded and your children shall come back. In other words, Israel's barrenness and the barrenness of mankind shall come to an end. Through the new covenant, that God shall bring about through Jesus Christ. Now, it's very strange when you read it. It's almost like Jeremiah 31 and a lot of the prophecies in the Old Testament, a lot of the glorious prophecies in Isaiah are mixed together in a very bittersweet way with, with tales of lamentation and judgment and woe together with joy and victory and, and, and so forth. And these things don't, belong together necessarily in our mind, but to God they are brought together. They are brought together. This is Matthew's way, it's God's way of showing the true condition of mankind in the true condition of Israel. Israel, as God's special people, she was a priestly people, as the Old Testament states many times. Now remember that a priest has two roles. The first is to represent God to men, but also to represent men to God. And even so, God, I mean, Israel was called to represent God to men. She was called to be the light of the world, and she was called to represent men to God. She was called to be a house of prayer for all nations. But Israel, in the deep purposes of God, also represented mankind in another way, in a dark way in a way that did not appear on the face of God's dealings with Israel, but which did come through again and again in her history. A way which seemed to destroy 
all of God's plans to save Israel and the world, but which in the end was shown in the infinite wisdom of God to actually further those plans. You got that? It's kind of like three-dimensional chess. It's, it's this very wisdom of God that makes Paul in Romans 11 talk about, go into eulogy, oh, the wisdom of God, when he sees how God has used even this dark side of Israel to further the salvation of the world. And this dark way that Israel unintentionally, as it were, both thwarted and furthered the plans of God was by showing the true faith of sin and its stranglehold on every person born into this world other than Jesus, the God-man. So it's, it's interesting, and even it's true today, that no one will turn to Jesus unless he first gets a glimpse of his loss and helpless condition. Francis Schaeffer once said that if he had an hour to witness to someone, he would spend 50 minutes convincing them of their lost condition and 10 minutes giving them the gospel. Even so, God spent a lot of time in the Old Testament setting up the gospel by convincing mankind of its lost condition. The gospel has a very long setup. That's why the Old Testament is a lot longer than the New Testament. And this is a big part of what God does through Israel's history in the Old Testament. Her covenant was not a covenant of, um, it wasn't a head fake from God to send Israel down the wrong road by getting her to earn her salvation, to do some uh, impossible task. No, it was, a God, it was a covenant of love and grace. And it was under such a covenant that Israel failed, which is what makes her failure so stark and so powerful and tragic. She failed under a gracious covenant, and God knew she would. God knew that the effects of sin ran so deep in mankind that even under a covenant of love and grace, mankind would fail. And Israel's tragic history was intended in part to prove for all of history, to all people of all time, that any relationship with God that depends to any degree on unredeemed man is doomed to fail and will tragically result only in greater condemnation. Now, this is why the incarnation was absolutely necessary, and Matthew keeps bringing this back to us, that the incarnation is absolutely necessary. There was no other way. And this is also why it was necessary for Jesus to relive the story of Israel and to fulfill her calling and destiny. And when we get to the climax of the story, we're going to see that all of Jesus' reliving and fulfilling of Israel's story will be in order to qualify him to do one thing, to die. And in his death, to conquer death. In the end, we reach the end of this story, Jesus, true Israel, true Son of God, true Emmanuel, true God with us, will be the true Passover Lamb. His death alone, His shed blood alone, His resurrection alone will be sufficient to break the stranglehold of death, to remove the guilt of sin, 
to overthrow the reign of Satan and thus to accomplish what neither Abraham nor Moses nor David nor any other was ever able to do. Even David, the man after God's own heart, we see the darkness in his adultery and in his murder. So the life of Jesus will kind of bring to critical mass all of history. The life of Jesus will bring to one point, like a, like a black hole, it will bring to one point all the darkness and all the evil of the world so that God can heap it upon his own son. It will bring together into a point all of the sin and the murderous rage that is what sin is. It will bring to one point in time where man could come as close as possible to murdering God himself. And it will bring all of this sin upon Jesus. He will be the victim of it, and he will bear it before God to break the power. And so in Jesus, we see brought together this stark darkness and also this great light. We see brought together in his, light and in his life, and particularly at the cross, we see the weeping of Rachel, the hopeless, helpless weeping of Rachel brought there. And we also see God's people singing for joy and streaming to the goodness of the Lord. And so we see that the gospel then has so many facets to us. We see that, number one, it is cosmic. The gospel, at least the gospel that is preached in the Bible, is a cosmic gospel. And for somebody to say, well, I don't want to deal with the gospel. I'm not going to deal with that. I'm not going to deal with Jesus. I'm just not going to go there. I'm not, it's like saying I'm not going to participate in an earthquake. I'm not going to participate in a tsunami. No, the choices are sink and drown or else have the waters be the waters of life that, that lift you up to the top. There, there's no evading this. This is a cosmic revolution that Jesus has brought about. He has changed the world. He's changed history. We're living in a different book than they were in the Old Testament. And so there is no avoiding it or putting it off. It is a cosmic gospel that is taking place all around us. And this is a gospel that sets before us life and death, even as Moses explained to the people in the Old Testament. He didn't say, I'm setting before you two ways of life. He didn't say, I'm setting before you two philosophies, two ways to fulfillment, two ways to happiness, different ways, different approaches. That's not what he said. He said, I set before you life and death. And so Christ sets before us and before all people life and death. And before you and you young people today is set forth life and death. And there's no opting out. And it's interesting that Moses says to the people, choose life. He doesn't say don't choose death. You don't have to choose death. Just do nothing. Just float. Just go with the current. You, have, you don't have to choose anything to choose death. You need to choose life. Choose life through Christ. It is the only way, but in the other sense, it's like, where is this choice? Is it a hard choice? 
Do you have to go somewhere? Do you have to climb some mountain? Do you have to swim some sea? No. Jesus is right in front of you. He is right in front of you. He is set right in front of you. And he has life. It's life and death. Choose life. And Jesus says, my burden is light. In other words, Jesus is not in the business of burdening people. He's in the business of taking burdens off. Of course, then he turns right around and says, if you seek to save your life, you will lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake, you will save it. Now, how is that a light burden? Because it is the way of life. It is life that he is offering. The great lie of Satan, the great lie we tell ourselves, the great lie the world tells us and throughout the whole history of the world is that the way that God sets before us is the way of, it's a drag, it's a bummer. It's denying yourself, denying yourself of happiness. It is not. It is the only way of life. To go the other way, the way of death, and to think you're experiencing happiness is to realize at the end of the, your days that you've been a dead man walking. It's like eating a feast with no taste buds. It's like, uh, it's like the crew on the, the ship in the, the first Pirates of the Caribbean. I can't remember who that, that captain was, uh, the bad captain who took the Black Pearl, that one. You remember the crew. It's like they live forever. They can't die. They live forever. But they're dead. They're dead men walking. They can't taste. They can't experience life. And when we come to Christ and we take on his commands, which give us life, we taste, we experience, we live for the first time. And this is what life is all about. Now, it's often tempting, and I'm speaking particularly to you here, uh, young folks and, and teenagers. Um, there's a very tempting thing, as you're in your teens sometimes, to you get a thrill out of doing things you shouldn't do. You get a thrill, there's a charge, there's a rush that you get from having a secret life doing things you know your parents wouldn't approve of, that God wouldn't approve of. You, you need to understand that that's the way of death. You're dabbling with death. That's a danger sign. If you're getting a rush from doing secret things that you shouldn't do, you need to understand this is not about being cool. It's not coolness and geekiness that's set before you. It's life and death. I don't need to tell you don't choose death. I mean, you don't have to choose anything to go that way. Choose life. Choose life. Choose Christ. He's right in front of you. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.